Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, new reports out this week show that global temperatures in 2020 were among the hottest on record. All these data sets, when you put them together, they all say the same story, and that's that the global temperature is warming. Coming up, what rising global temperatures mean for extreme weather events in Colorado. And we'll hear more about one family's efforts to save a beloved family chicken. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Governor Jared Polis and state lawmakers have a goal to bring greenhouse gas emissions down by 50 percent this decade relative to where they were in 2005. On Thursday, Polis released a more detailed plan for how the state will attempt to do that. We need to continue the swift transition away from costly coal towards low-cost renewable energy and achieve deep reductions in methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. We need to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles and modernize transportation planning and infrastructure to reduce driving and traffic. Last year, the impacts of our changing climate could be seen and felt across the state. Here's Governor Polis talking this week about the impact climate change had on Colorado in 2020. Last year, in the span of one fire season, Colorado experienced the three largest wildfires in the history of our state, burning hundreds of thousands of acres, displacing families, many uh, not knowing whether their homes were lost or would still be there, some losing everything they had. Really a stark reminder that climate refugees don't only live uh, near the oceans on the coast, but right here in Colorado. Uh, We also have a statewide drought, hotter, drier climate, And unfortunately, 2020 was not an anomaly. It was, in fact, a harbinger of the future, really illuminating in in, in bright light the challenges that we face. Twenty twenty was the second hottest year on record, dating back to eighteen eighty. That's according to a new report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. According to NOAA, twenty sixteen was the hottest year on record for the globe, and the seven warmest years have all occurred since twenty fourteen, seven years ago. To help us better understand the latest data on our warming planet, we're joined by Ira Sanchez Lugo. She is a climatologist with NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Ira, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for the invitation. So as I mentioned, this recent report from NOAA has 2020 as the second hottest year on record. Can you help us understand what it actually means 
to be the second hottest year and, and how the team at NOAA came to understand that? We did say that it is it was the second warmest year on record. However, it was very, very close to the record warm year that took place in 2016. The difference was like 0.02 degrees Celsius or 0.04 degrees Fahrenheit difference. The thing is that when we look at each year by year, they might vary. When you look at the decade by decade time series, you see that the last decade, 2011 through 2020, was the warmest decade on record, surpassing the previous record that took place only the last decade, which was 2001 through 2010. And we get data from all over the world, primarily station weather data, and also buoys and ships that are on the ocean. So we collect temperature data and we get all of that information. And we obviously do a quality control check beforehand. And um, we calculate what we call anomalies. That is the difference between the temperature that was observed and a reference temperature. For the global temperatures, we use the 1901 to 2000 base period. So once we calculate those anomalies for all the data that we've received on a station level buoy and ships, we create what we call a, a five by five a grid. And after that, we can create maps to see what areas experience cooler or warmer than average conditions during a particular month or year. And then we average all that data to come up with what was for the globe as a whole. When you look at the image attached with this report, it is basically all red. Yes, and it has been for quite some time. Year by year, we're going to see uh, variation because of climate variability. There might be a La Nina, like for example, in 2021, we're going to start off with a La Nina. So we do expect global temperatures to be slightly cooler than what was in recent years. That doesn't mean it's going to be below average, but in comparison to 2020, the temperature might be slightly cooler. So from year to year, we'll see variation. But when you look at the overall trend, you will see that the global temperatures are continuously increasing. There's different data sets out there. We have NASA. We have uh, an agency in the United Kingdom. And Japan has its own data set. All these data sets, when you put them together they all say the same story, and that's that the global temperature is warming. You know, here in Colorado, we saw record-breaking wildfires and drought conditions in 2020, two things that are connected to our changing climate. Can you help us understand the connection between the warmer years and the trends that we're talking about across the globe and these extreme weather conditions that we face, not just here in the Mountain West, but I guess kind of everywhere that is touched by a changing climate? There's not going to be a place on Earth that's not going to be affected one way or another by climate change. One thing that I try to tell people is because people tend to focus on the one degree Celsius. Oh, it's only a one degree Celsius. But that's a global average. We're seeing that there's areas, regions that are warming a lot faster. And one example is the Arctic. What I also tell people is that a small increase in the global temperature can lead to big changes in extreme weather events. And we've already started seeing that. There's some locations that will start seeing more frequent and more intense heat waves. Like you said, drought as well. We're seeing also some areas experiencing more intense and frequent drought. And that has to do as well because it's getting warmer, so there's more evaporation. And other locations are going to see the opposite. They're going to see that when it rains, it's going to rain heavier, more intense and frequent uh, precipitation. So like I said, there's not going to be a place on Earth that's not going to be affected by climate change. Now, with the understanding that I am definitely not a climatologist, is it wrong to assume that these sort of weather events are just going to get worse and worse if the planet continues to warm the way it has been? Yes, that is correct, unfortunately. Yes. Again, as I said, a small increase in the global temperature leads to big changes in the extreme weather events. And so as the global temperatures continue to increase, we do expect them, these type of extreme events, to keep 
exacerbating. What is the outlook when it comes to 2021? Anything your team has worked on to help us understand what we might be looking at? We do some type of a statistical analysis using historical data that we already have. And with data through December, we estimate that 2021 will definitely be a top 10 year for the globe. However, because we're starting off with La Nina in the year, we know that La Nina tends to decrease slightly in global temperatures. So the probability of it being the warmest year on record decreases drastically. Uh, Most likely it will fall between first and eighth warmest year on record. That's the 95% confidence level that we have right now. Ira Sanchez Lugo is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Centers for Environmental Information. Ira, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. The bond between people and their pets can be incredibly strong, but it's not always one that others understand. And sometimes the lengths people go to for their pets can seem, well, a little extravagant. KUNC reporter Stacy Nick explains. There's still a solid layer of snow on the ground when I meet Salida and Mike Nothnagel at their Wellington home. Would you like me to take my shoes off? Or? Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> we are shoes in this house. <laughs> That's because in addition to three dogs and two cats, the Nothnagel residence is also home to a half dozen chickens. Right off the kitchen, in what usually would be the dining room, are two repurposed coops for the birds, who currently are free-ranging around the living room. Yeah, the cleaning is pretty intense. It's definitely a never-ending job. I mean, there's there's no question about that. I mean, it's bird laundry, and it's dusting, and it's vacuuming, and it's... And you can't keep them in diapers all the time. Yep, you heard right. The chickens wear diapers. That includes Blue, a Blue Splash Morans, who was the first of the family's flock to make her way into the house. She enjoyed cuddling. And she would sit on my lap while I watched TV, and she would just purr and and coo at me, and she would kind of tell us when she was ready to go to bed. Blue even has a special spot to sleep on her bedside table. You know, most people would do the same thing for their dogs or cats or whatever, and so I guess I just don't see it as a whole heck of a lot different. The thing is, we love who we love. And that extends to our pets as well. Because it's unconditional. Erin Allen is a social worker at Colorado State University's Veterinary Teaching Hospital's Argus Institute. They don't judge us. You know, if we don't brush our teeth, they're still going (laughs) to give us kisses. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's a safe relationship. For Salida Nothnagel, that bond was with Blue, who goes everywhere with her, including the feed store and Home Depot. And it was on one of those trips that she noticed something was wrong. I kind of started noticing when we would go out that she would start like open mouth breathing a little bit and her comb would turn a little bit like a mauve color instead of like a red. Nothnagel took Blue to four different veterinarians to see if they could figure out the problem. After a lot of theories and almost a year, it was at CSU Veterinary Teaching Hospital, where Nothnagel now works as a medical laboratory scientist, that a CT scan finally gave an answer. That's when we found this hole in her heart that an adult bird isn't supposed to have. That's CSU veterinarian Dr. Matthew Johnston, who specializes in avian, exotic, and zoological medicine. Johnston could only find one other recorded case in a bird, a parrot. Undeterred, he took the case. My thing is the human-animal bond exists regardless of the species. And I can tell you stories of a woman who had a therapeutic hermit crab, and her hermit crab meant the world to her. For Blue, Dr. Johnston worked with the hospital's cardiac team to create a new technique going through the jugular vein to close the hole in Blue's heart. 
They even practiced it on chicken carcasses to make sure it was possible to make the hairpin turn necessary for the procedure. And the cost? I went through all of the invoices that I had from the veterinary clinics that we had taken her to, like trying to get her diagnosed and the heart medications we had tried and all that kind of a thing and added everything up and we were at $10,245.46. Nothnagel knows exactly what many of you are thinking right now. 20 years ago, while working as a vet tech, she thought the same thing after a woman paid $500 for stitches for her chickens after a fox attack. Why in the world would you pay that kind of money for chickens? I never put the thought together that they would have personalities or likes and dislikes. They were just food. In general, grief over a pet is pretty disenfranchised by society. We don't acknowledge it to the degree that we feel it. Again, CSU veterinary social worker Erin Allen. They think for some reason, I don't know if it's a judgment or just a hesitation, because it's just not the norm, they think, but it really is. (laughs) Because it is very natural for someone to be as upset over the loss or, or an illness of a pet family member as they would be over a human family member. But slowly over generations, Alan says the role pets have played in our lives has changed, going from the barn to the house to even sleeping in our beds. Each time they start to get a little closer and so our relationships have the opportunities to be even bigger and deeper than what they were generations ago. I think that's where all those kinds of doubts come from. And it's from the historical perspective of the place of pets in our lives. During the pandemic, Alan says that perspective is likely shifting again. Animal shelters are being cleared out of adoptable pets and people are leaning on their pets more for emotional support, further deepening their bond. And what about Blue? Since her surgery, Nothnagel says she's her old self. She's back to crowing, which is just nuts because, you know, being a hen, she wasn't really supposed to crow in the first place. Apparently, Blue is doing a lot of things chickens aren't supposed to do. Stacy Nick, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Throughline is a narrative history series that takes listeners back in time to get an understanding of events that have shaped our world and why they matter. Here on Colorado Edition, we love exploring how history shapes our world. So I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with the hosts of Throughline, Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablui. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Throughline began as a weekly podcast uh, in early 2019. Where did the idea come from to start a narrative history series uh, at that time? Did you all have a, a personal interest in history? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it actually started even a couple years before that. Um, and it, it was very organic, actually. Um, you know, I, I had been at NPR for a few years and, and then Ramtin got there um, to start working on the secret project. That would eventually become how I built this with Guy Raz. Um, and, you know, we struck up a friendship, uh, you know, not long after he got there and started very quickly talking about um, the news and history and sort of the lack of context that we were seeing, especially around stories covering the Middle East, which, you know, we, uh, Ramtin is um, uh, Iranian originally. He was born there um, and I'm 
uh, Palestinian originally, and I was born in Saudi Arabia. And so we both immigrated to this country and we, so we both have this kind of international view and kind of grew up hearing a lot of conversations around politics and history and all of that. And so had a really natural interest in it. Um, and so it just, it kind of was a merging of a lot of things um, at the same time. It, uh, you know, there was um, the, the 2016 election um, uh, was, was underway. And so there was just a lot of, a lot happening and this kind of um, nonstop barrage of 24 seven news just felt like it wasn't leaving a lot of space for, for deeper examinations of how we got to where we are. And um, being producers, we were also thinking, you know, how do we make, you know, that context, that sort of exploration of the past engaging and immersive and cinematic. And so all of that got us thinking, landed us um, at a place where we were, we were ready to make through line. For people who roll their eyes a little bit and think, oh, history, no, it's so dry. Uh, maybe we had a bad history teacher at one point in our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. how did, <laughs> did you have to overcome that when, when pitching this as a, as a project? Yes, and I think that was something we were aware of from the beginning because that seems to be, you know, it's a kind of, um, you know, a, a trope or a cliche about history and learning history. But we are both really passionate about it. And we are the kind of people that would come in you know, when we were at the time that Run was describing, we'd come in and have lunch and we both described like wormholes. We would go down historical wormholes. We would go down researching a particular idea. And so we tried to bring that passion to the creation of the show. And so when we were, you know, we didn't do a kind of a typical pitch where you write up something on paper and show someone. We just started making it. And we made our first pilot, you know, without you know, really any permission to do so. We just kind of wanted to do it. And so we showed that passion, I think, through the pilot that we created. Our whole vision was like the proof is in the actual thing we're making. And so, yeah, that was a thing we had to overcome in pitching it. But it was a goal from the beginning to try to make history, as Run said, immersive and engaging and fun. Um, a show we really love and respect is Radio Lab, And they did that for science in a lot of ways. We wanted to do the same thing for history. This show occupies such a unique place, drawing these parallels from what's going on today and events of the past. And you really explore things that a lot of us either uh, don't really think of or we think of them as just random things or things we've never heard of. How do you decide what events would make for an interesting episode? I think we get inspiration from all sorts of places. Um, You know, we really are trying to help people understand what is happening in the world today as best as possible. But that's vague, right? Like that's a broad category. And so sometimes when, you know, let's say over the summer when, when, you know, the George Floyd killing happened and there were all these protests, there's a real kind of need to respond and to give people context to what is literally happening in this moment. Um, And then other times, like with our our episode on um, bananas, which is, I believe, one of the uh, first episodes that's going to be airing on the radio, we're bringing you into a world that will help you understand the world today um, better, but in an unexpected way. So it's a little bit less kind of um, on the news, but it'll still kind of capture you know, an aspect of our world. Um, And the next time you look at it, you'll think about it differently. And um, just very quickly, you know, that episode about bananas really, it takes you to, you know, um, other countries and into a, uh, you know, this, this world where a corporation essentially made it possible for us to have bananas on our, 
dine, on our dining tables um, for a very cheap price. And it, it really explores how that came to be. And it's, it's a story that, you know, just looking at that banana that you have sitting there, you would not expect. Just briefly before we let you go, I mean, of course, there's been so much happening in the in the news the past few years and even just in the past few weeks. Any thoughts about what you will tackle next in some upcoming episodes? I can tell you some of the ones I'm I'm excited about. We, we haven't done a lot of ancient history. So we have an episode coming out about the last time um, a kind of interconnected civilization collapsed, uh, which is in 1177 BC, a kind of international uh, civilization that existed in the Near East to look at kind of what people were facing then and what is in common with what we're facing today. We have another episode coming up about um, chaos and chaos theory specifically and how human beings deal with chaos. And I promise you, these episodes that were planned a while before, but they feel really relevant right now, given everything that's going on here in the States. It is a show that, you know, I think every single person who lives in the world today will be able to, I think, gain something from. And um, I think it'll take you to unexpected places. And if you think that you don't like history, try out our show because it might prove you wrong. Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablui, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can hear Throughline on KUNC Sunday afternoons at 3 o'clock. You can also find both Throughline and KUNC's Colorado edition wherever you get your podcasts. The new movie Pieces of a Woman is about childbirth gone bad and how a young woman copes with her grief. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the sight of these experiences from a woman's point of view is a revelation. Birth sequences are hardly new to the movies, from the flutter and chaos of Melly birthing her baby in Gone with the Wind, to Ricky Ricardo's comic anxiety over Lucy and I Love Lucy, to hundreds of others. A child coming into the world is pretty standard stuff in movies. Maybe the most graphic birth film is the 1959 short Window Water Baby Moving by the late Denver avant-gardist Stan Brakhage. But that's entirely from a man's point of view. The long birth sequence near the start of Cornel Mundruso's Pieces of a Woman is a different kettle of fish. These scenes are about the experience of a woman. Martha, Vanessa Kirby, goes into labor at home. Her male partner, Sean, Shia LaBeouf, is fully with her. He calls the midwife, holds Martha, comforts her, helps her into and out of the bathtub. But it's obvious that this birthing is fundamentally Martha's experience. Here, she and Sean are waiting for the midwife. Can you call her again? Because this is such you. This is actually hurting now. Oh, God. Woo! Whoa! <laughs> Martha endures the pain of contractions. She's the one who yells out. I've not witnessed the birth in person. Friends who have say they've never seen the experience captured so richly. But a problem for such a startling opening is what does a movie do for the next hundred minutes? The publicity for the film reveals that the birth does not go well. So it's no secret. And what the film has left is Martha's grief, which of course is deep. She gets no help. Sean grows impatient and demanding, and he borders on abusive. And Martha has an intrusive mother, Ellen Burstyn, full of self-serving advice and demands for what Martha should do. No one seems to listen to her or pay attention to what she may need or want. It's a shock that the midwife is prosecuted and also sued by Martha's family. 
In the birth scenes, the midwife seems careful, attentive, and competent. She checks the baby's heart rate several times during labor, and when she suspects trouble, she tells Sean to call the medics. But Martha's mother wants vengeance, and so Martha has to thread her way through the terrible maze of what others want and her own grief, which leaves her weakened and easily pushed around. Through all of this, you can't get the stunning birth images out of your mind which is probably a good filmmaking choice. That's what's in Martha's head. It's not an event that she can shake. She can't get over it and move on the way she's told to do. So we don't get that escape either. We're with her. And when she finally begins to find herself, we understand how grief and memory have dominated her. At first, I distrusted the title of the movie. Pieces of a Woman summons up dozens of slasher films about women chopped up by insane male villains, and we've had enough of women characters as really just a lot of body parts. Here, though, Martha's job is to reassemble herself, to take the fragments of herself and her life and make herself whole. And that's a more interesting picture than a woman left in fragments. Actor Vanessa Kirby's been praised for her work in Pieces of a Woman, and she deserves it. She carries the film. And after that intense exterior action of the birth sequence, the movie is about Martha on the inside. And with small gestures and expressions, Kirby embodies that interiority. Martha may be hobbled by grief, but all through the movie you can see that life is cooking beneath her surface. And so, when she gets herself together, it may be a surprise, but you also know she's worked for it. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we look at why Colorado's already steep home prices have surged even higher. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. We get production help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.